You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. On this episode, I interview Fran Siegel, Executive Director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Fran is one of the most knowledgeable, thoughtful, and well-connected people in the field of impact investing, and she covers a lot in this interview. We're releasing this interview on the first day of SOCAP 19, our flagship annual conference, where we'll dig into many of the topics that Fran highlights in this episode. Head to our website to view the live stream at socialcapitalmarkets.net and sign up for the digital experience to access many more interviews and resources on the rapidly growing field of impact investing. Let's jump right into the interview. All right. Well, I'm so glad, Fran, to have you here with us today. Um, You and I have known each other for a long time. One of the first people I met in the impact investing world. And I would guess that's true of a lot of people, given your uh, teaching at UCLA and other things, right? As people are entering the industry, they meet the illustrious Fran Siegel. Um, but I, I'm so excited because um, one of our best sessions at SOCAP the last few years has been your state of the field. And I think we sometimes forget that at SOCAP we have everyone from the very you know frontier leading practitioners to people who are really just orienting themselves and that all of us can use sort of that macro, where are we as a field, what are the latest developments, all of that. And today I'd love for us to just look back a little bit. Um, You've been doing the state of the field for a while and the state of the field has changed quite a bit. If you go back to 2009, what was sort of your your role in the industry at that time and your perspective on it? Well, first, Lindsay, it's great to to join you today. Um, I've loved working with you over the years and uh, have really enjoyed uh, doing the state of the field of impact investing session at SOCAP. So thank you for that opportunity. Um, Yes, so you're bringing us back to uh, roughly 10 years ago when the term impact investing had been coined at a Rockefeller Foundation convening. And before I talk about the state of the field at that time, I wanted to just note for your listeners that the coining of that term was very much a consolidation of practices that have been around for decades or even centuries. So investors and consumers have long considered their personal contributions to injustice and the common good. And we can go back We can go back further, but you you can go back to the 18th and 19th centuries where Quakers and Methodists and Lutherans, religious investors, began divesting from sin sin businesses. That's where the term sin stock came from. And in some instances, even created their own economic system, which focused on products that were free from forced labor. And we can touch back on that in a a moment. But um, jumping uh, forward, I think about more modern practice of impact investing starting in the 70s with the practice of microfinance, which was developed by by Muhammad Yunus, Grameen uh, in Bangladesh, and and others were practicing at that time. And similarly, in the United States, the Community Development Finance Institution industry, CDFIs, Community Development uh, uh, kind of bank alternatives for underbanked, domestic underbanked, took off fueled by the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, which which uh, had banks investing in these community development finance institutions, and that also happened in the 70s, as well as student protests around South African apartheid. In the early 80s, we had the first socially responsible mutual funds that applied negative screens to, the, again, these sin industries that we talked about in a moment, such as gambling, weapons, and alcohol. And so just wanted to say for your listeners that this practice is not new, although the term is a bit new. And at the 10 years ago when the, the term was coined, and I, I think right around that time, 2008, 2009, there was a very robust debate um, based on a piece of research and writing from JP Morgan and the Global Impact Investing Network, the GIN, that really positioned impact investing as uh, an asset class 
um, rather than a lens through which to look at all asset classes, which is a more kind of contemporary position that we have now. I would say 10 years ago, the practice of impact investing was focused on the private asset classes, so private debt and equity, investing in private companies, and these negative screens that we've been talking about, uh, screening out certain practices. Um, the phrase ESG, environmental, social, and governance, which are positive screens, was coined in 2005. So there's a lot of activity and consolidation happening around 10 years ago. And the market has grown so significantly since then, and then it's really been mainstreamed in a lot of ways. So USCIF uh, does a survey. They've been doing a survey, a uh, biennial survey. They started in 1996. At the time, the survey found uh, $600 billion in sustainable and community investments, so mostly focused on the impact investing through the public markets and community development finance institutions that I mentioned a moment ago. In 2018, that survey showed that $12 trillion or one of every four investment dollars in the U.S. are invested um, according to sustainable practices, and that's up nearly 40% since 2016. Although I will note that the bulk of that, about uh, $11.5 trillion, is focused on this public market activity of, of ESG-screened investments. The Global Impact Investing Network, the GIN, uh, performs an annual survey that is a little bit more skewed toward um, versus global versus US, the US SIFs. US SIF uh, focuses on the American market. And in 2018, they leveraged the, the GIN leveraged their annual survey data and extrapolated out that um, the total global market for intentional impact investments, um, which is largely but not exclusively private market investments, was over a half a billion dollars. And that too has been growing. I think it doubled over the last couple of years. Uh, so the, 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 the field has really grown in terms of capital moving. And I know, I hope we can dig in a little bit more on what that means in a minute. But um, I just wanted to say, quote uh, Clara Miller here, who said in 2017, when she was president of the Heron Foundation, which as you may know, is a $300 million endowment that's all invested for impact. She said, all investing is impact investing, which of course is true. And um, we know that all investing has an impact, though it's largely opaque to the investor. And I think that the work of, of our field, in part, is to make that impact, that positive, negative externalities, these impacts um, transparent to the investor so the investor can choose. In terms of my, just where I was <laughs> 10 years ago or 10 years ago plus. Yeah. Um, so I started in impact investing in earnest in about 2006. So this was a couple years before the term was coined. Um, I was working at an impact venture capital fund and accelerator, investing in a range of impact themes, including clean tech and natural organic food and beverage and some others. And we really were targeting you know, a market rate of return and impact. Um, but it was early days. Um, in 2011, I joined Impact Assets, where you and I first worked together. Um, impact Assets is an impact investing donor-advised fund, which deploys capital across asset classes for impact, from uh, depository assets to public markets, private markets, and real assets. When I joined in 2011, the assets under management at Impact Assets was about $30 million. And this year, the assets under management at Impact Assets has exceeded a billion dollars. So it's been extraordinary growth. Yeah. Um, in a way, it's a microcosm of the growth of the field itself. And I just want to go back again. So you said 2006, before the term was even coined, I just think that's it's a unique perspective for people who were in it before then just to say like when did it actually feel like it became a field versus an interesting approach for that venture fund you were in. Mhm. Mm in 2006 uh Investor Circle was around, Bali was around, uh, RSF Social Finance, um, Business for Social Responsibility, uh, Social Venture Network. There are a lot of groups, many of them focused on high net worth families and you know, individuals practicing impact investing. But I would say that it still felt very niche. There were self-identified impact investors, but they were they were they were hard to find outside of these um, network groups. And so it felt very very diffused. And I think it still felt fairly diffused uh, when the term was coined in 2008. And, I, you know, if I think back, Lindsay, going to SOCAP and some of those early years, 
it, it felt like a movement. It, it felt like there was gathering momentum um, in the early days of SOCAP. Um, I really think of SOCAP as created by and for impact entrepreneurs. And I would say that if we look at the changing demographic um, and psychographic and professions of the attendees as the years went on, um, some more suits started showing up, some uh, mainstream asset managers, some wealth advisors, uh, larger institutional investors sh started showing up. And although SOCAP has really kept its root, and I believe that the movement has kept its roots deeply in impact, uh, we start seeing, and maybe we can talk about this, the kind of swirl of mainstream interest and mainstream capital coming into the field. And um, that's where we are today. So um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about more, more about that. I, of course, mark the years by what happened at SOCAP in any given year, um, or, you know, if I had kids or got married or whatever, but I have very visual memories of like certain things on each SOCAP stage. And one you mentioned in 2015, when we had Bain there, when we had BlackRock there, like that year felt like a, a really, a year when the mainstream conversation sort of showed up in a big way. But I'm curious if we sort of look even from when you, you got into the industry in 2006, are there sort of years or landmark moments that for you sort of mark time between then and now in the evolution of the field? Yeah, we, we've talked a number of times already about the coining of the term. That was important. Some of the early research um, that Laura Callanan and, and others did reports um, around the field. We talked about the gin doing some early research reports. We talked about the market sizing, which is so essential in understanding um, the growth of the field. But as I think about these watershed moments over the last 10 or 12 years, there are a couple that, that come to mind. Um, and I, I think of them in kind of buckets. So on the asset owner side, the folks who have um, uh, folks and institutions that have capital to deploy. There's there's one particular moment on the family side that really stands out to me as seminal, and that was the 2014 uh, Rockefeller Brothers Fund announcement that they were committing to divesting from fossil fuels and turning their energy more and their focus to clean energy. And this was such a powerful moment as we saw yeah. the heirs to the John D. Rockefeller Standard Oil fortune really address the source of their wealth, um, understanding that the world is changing, understanding that resources are not uh, infinite and that the issue of stranded assets around oil is becoming more and more material to that, that, uh, that industry. And they decided to take, to take action, not just to divest, but to invest. And um, I was just so moved by that when, when, when that happened. And that to me was really like a watershed because it looked back on the kind of source of the, 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 the wealth was from kind of the robber baron era. And uh, here was the, the, the current and future generations of this wealth really um, leading by example. Um, a couple of others, like on the foundation side, um, uh, in 2017, the Ford Foundation, uh, Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation, announced that um, uh, the foundation would commit a billion dollars of its endowment to impact investing over 10 years. This is a foundation that had a very long history of impact investing and, in fact, uh, you know, worked with the Treasury Department and the IRS in the 60s to create the program-related investment. Um, but here was uh, this, this president, this organization, um, making this very bold commitment. So that absolutely stands out as those, the 2018 announcement by Sharon Albert, who is the president of the Nathan Cummings Foundation, half a billion dollar endowment, um, announcing its intention to go all in on impact. Um, and then more recently, I would say the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is the largest in the world, voted to divest um, from coal and starting to invest in more sustainable sources of, of, of fuel. And um, we're starting to see some of the, the, the larger pension funds in the United States um, moving. Uh, they're a little bit slower, but we've had some recent announcement about, you know, New York, uh, the New York pension fund um, divesting from private prisons. So some more action there. And then I would say on the asset manager side, you talked about um, 
BlackRock, you talked about Bain Capital. I think that uh, on the incumbent asset managers, we've really seen some movement. And I think about uh, a watershed moment being the 2018 letter, the annual letter that Larry Fink writes to um, to CEOs that his company and his firm invests in. So he's a CEO of BlackRock, which is the largest asset management firm in the world. And he wrote in this annual letter, and I just want to say a quote that always is, is um is a, is a good one. And that is to prosper over time. Every company must not only deliver financial performance, but also show how it makes a positive contribution to society. And then in 2019, he writes this letter every first quarter. In 2019, he wrote about the profound responsibilities of fiduciaries and the need to enable clients to pursue sustainable long-term investment options, such as offerings that would produce positive ESG outcomes. I would say that, you know, while these are strong and powerful leadership words from the CEO of BlackRock, uh, lately BlackRock has already also been kind of uh, that that kind of leadership has been held up against the firm's uneven proxy voting record on climate and other topics. So there's tensions within these big yes, organizations. Oh, yeah. And I think with all the mainstreaming and even within the industry, we want the mainstream capital in, but it's not going to be impact at its core in the way that some of the early movers were. And so reconciling where there is impact and where there still isn't, and oftentimes within the same firm or the same team. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my position on that is when some of these incumbents, uh, and a lot of private equity incumbents are starting to enter the field, uh, TPG, you talked about Bain, which was uh, earlier, moved earlier, uh, Partners Group, Apollo, Carlisle, Blackstone are all starting, um, you know, multi-hundred million or multi-billion dollar funds. Um, what we want to see is impact integrity and commitment to impact metrics measurement and management uh, from these firms at the get-go, the kind of discipline um, of our field baked in, and then certainly hope that over time um, that, that, that those practices actually spread throughout the, the firm. Um, you mentioned um, these, these larger funds, but I would say that there are a couple of I would say, pure play impact firms that have really led the charge. Uh, one watershed, I think, was in 2015 when DBL Partners closed their third impact VC fund at $400 million. In just this year, LeapFrog Investments launched a $700 million emerging market fund, which was the largest ever private equity, pure play private equity fund from an impact manager. And right. so, when those start getting, uh, those pure play funds start getting to multi-hundred millions of dollars, they can have the hope of hopping on the wealth platforms. They can uh, conceivably raise money from insurance companies and pension funds and university endowments. And so that has been, uh, kind of, you know, I, maybe we'll talk about barriers later. Um, the other thing, Lindsay, I just wanted to talk about in terms of landmarks um, is, of course, there's been a lot of conversation around Anand Gerardus's book, Winners Take All. He's very active on Twitter. He talks about what he considers to be the fallacy of win-win um, from philanthropy and impact investing and asks uh, that we question how practitioners in our field have made their money and how they donate and invest it, uh, which is, I think some of his critiques are fair and others are not. Um, and then the other a very notable announcement that was very recent and I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on it, is the business roundtable announcement right. where it was in August, 181 CEOs of the largest U.S. companies signed this new business roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation. Um, and they affirmed that corporations could pursue long-term value, should pr pursue long-term value um, on behalf of all of their stakeholders. So absolutely shareholders, but customers, employees, communities, and notably they listed shareholders last um, and this is a, a, a stark break with the incumbent paradigm of shareholder primacy and short-termism that's dominated corporate America and Wall Street for the last 40 years, uh, really since Milton Friedman posited that the social responsibility of corporations is to maximize profit. And um, I see this as uh, 
almost like a self-regulatory move because there's an acknowledgement that the world is really changing and there's rising in income inequality and dissatisfaction with the kind of allocation of value across uh, across society and across the environment. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to contrast that maybe later with the self-regulation versus actual regulation and legislation that may be uh, afoot. But I would say when I think about landmarks, there are also policy landmarks um, over the last 10 years. Um, in 2015, the Department of Labor stated that ERISA-regulated pension fund fiduciaries, so these are private pension funds, can consider ESG factors in their investment decisions. Um, ESG factors could be used as a tiebreaker when the investments are otherwise equal, and they could be considered when directly tied to the financial value of the investment, which we know more and more that impact factors that are material do drive financial performance. Yeah, and I just, as a little added context, because I think we try to make sure that that this is super accessible. And so just a little extra context on that. It's, it's shadowed by this concept that there's no free lunch, that you can't add impact to the way you invest without conceding financial returns. And that for years, trustees of these pension funds and other things said our fiduciary duty doesn't allow us to consider social or environmental factors or impact factors or whatever, which is a total fallacy. And I think some of these ways that not having good governance and practices in place um, have really depleted the value of certain investments and other things you think of like BP or Enron or you know, all of these cases of things gone wrong where you aren't paying close enough attention to those. It, it seems like that finally sort of bubbled up to the top to really move that. Um, it is part of your fiduciary duty to understand the, these other ways besides financial value that you're that you're driving change in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So there's this um, long-standing kind of trenchant belief that uh, there is this trade-off. It's like a perennial in our space. Um, and the truth is, you know, you can have your cake and eat it too on fi- market rate financial returns and impact, except when you can't. Right. And so I will, you know, share share with you, you know, some 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 data to suggest that you can. Um, but I would also say that in the kind of you know spirit of SOCAP and the spirit of uh, reality, <laughs> is that uh, there are, I believe, certain regions, geographies. Uh, constituencies and customers served, um, emerging asset classes, emerging markets, frontier markets, where that you can have deep impact, but you may not have um, a market rate financial return, return. You may take a concessionary turn, or there may be blended finance where you have kind of a layer cake of capital, or you have a grant, and maybe you have tax credits, and maybe you have concessionary capital, and all that creates uh, an incentive for more market rate to come in. And I do think that there are some uh, types of investments like that that over time can evolve into more market rate offerings because the, the market just has to develop. Like my, I think about microfinance where there is trenchant belief that the poor were bad credit risks and microfinance has shown that that isn't the case. And so that's a sort of Uh, misperception of risk. Uh, But I do think that there may be some investment themes where that are persistently concessionary or persistently need some sort of subsidy from government or from other entities. On the market rate side, you touched on this. There's an increasing understanding that for for certain types of investments, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have your market rate and high impact. And but that you don't always want to. I mean, yeah, I think the, yeah. the thing as a, as a landmark moment, it's like that we just open up the conversation a little bit, that that ERISA regulation saying, fiduciaries, you can consider these things. And then it's within their domain to decide like, what is sort of our investment policy? What is our mandate? which should be different. I think, you know, a lot of the really interesting conversations in foundations is like, is our, is our responsibility to maximize this endowment if it's going direct cross purposes to the purpose of the foundation? If the foundation is there to preserve climate and you're investing in oil and gas, like that's a conversation that we need to have. So I don't know, those landmarks where it, it reaches that sort of policy level just feels like it sort of unlocks 
conversations within these boardrooms and these other places that have really allowed the field to move forward. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. So we talked about uh, the Department of Labor bulletin in 2015. There was also in 2015 um, some IRS IRS guidance for tax-exempt foundations that allow them to pursue mission-related investing, which is investing their endowment for impact. Um, And so I would say before that, to your point, some foundation fiduciaries were reluctant to pursue mission-related investing due to the uncertain legal and tax implications. And so um, this Treasury guidance and IRS clarification really paved the way, for example, to one of my other watershed moments, which is Ford Foundation's billion-dollar carve-out of their investment. And so you're absolutely right that this this topic of fiduciary duty um, is essential in driving more institutional capital toward impact. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, I agree. One other thing kind of like that that's, you know, a little on the wonky side, and I just think I love you, Fran, because you love the wonky stuff, but you also (laughs) make it, I think, really accessible for most people to understand um, why these things matter. And they are technical in some ways, but they're important to understand. And if you can take us back to the sort of the G7 um, Mm -hmm. task force that was set up on impact investing and and explain sort of what that was, how that started, and then, you know, how that leads to where you are now and, and your role with the U.S. Alliance. Yeah, so uh, the G7 Social Impact Investment Task Force was initiated by Sir Ronald Cohen when the U.K., David Cameron in particular, had uh, the presidency of the G8. This, so this was bef- just before Russia was, was removed from the G8 that became the G7. And Sir Ronald and others uh, engaged folks in the G7 countries um, and to and encourage them to create something called national advisory boards, which were voluntary boards of different market actors in the G7 countries, and challenged us to create a federal po- recommendation to our respective federal governments about how impact investing could be catalyzed, private capital for public good could be catalyzed through federal policy. And so uh, that that happened um, because of Sir Ronald's leadership. There was uh, a fair amount of attention paid. And I would say that the U.S. National Advisory Board, which delivered that, their, their policy paper, which indeed was called Private Capital for Public Good, had a lot of recommendations uh, for for federal policy, you know, ranging from the modernization of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, uh, which I can give you, give you an update on that. Uh, it talked about an enhanced community investment incentives. We could talk about opportunity zones later, um, all the way to you know, procurement policies and um, impact-oriented investment options within the federal pension fund. And that those papers were delivered in 2014, 2015. Just to put it in context, you know, we just mentioned the Department of Labor bulletin, the Treasury guidance. So that happened in 2015, and we, we absolutely talked about fiduciary duty in this in this report to the federal government. Um, at that time, uh, Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation, took over the leadership of the U.S. National Advisory Board from Matt Bannock and the team at Omidyar Network, who had been uh, really catalyzing the development of this report. Um, and Darren recruited me to come run what used to be called the U.S. National Advisory Board, now it's called the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, uh, to build on the, you know, the policy heritage that we have from the G7 work, uh, but also expanding to other areas where we felt like uh, we could be value-add and very high leverage in trying to catalyze the flow of more capital for impact among U.S. asset owners um, with a uh, with a global eye. So we look at impact investing as across asset classes globally, and the U.S. part of U.S. Impact Investing Alliance really talks about U.S. asset owners. Yeah. And the, I mean, just to, um, not for you to necessarily speak on, but your national, this national advisory board in the U.S., is part of a network now of 20 plus national advisory boards from all these different countries that meet under the global steering group. And so it's really a 
global movement. Just to clarify, this isn't just a U.S. conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From where you sit, U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, um, what are some of the the big opportunities and challenges that we're that we're grappling with right now? And I'd say one is um, is this idea that you we mentioned before, sort of the idea of impact washing. And so um, as the field grows, this is one I see all the time in running SOCAP, how are we sort of preserving that integrity of impact? But curious what else you're seeing as sort of state of the field right now and and as you look ahead. Yes, a couple of opportunities that we see. Uh, the first is coming wealth transfer. So uh, different sources cite different numbers, but there will is a coming 30 to $40 trillion wealth transfer over the next handful of decades. Um, the capital will first pass to women, um, just simply because women uh, tend to outlive men. Uh, so women to, to men and then to the children who are millennials. We know Morgan Stanley actually just came out uh, couple months ago with a refresh research report that showed that 85% of millennials believe that their investments could influence climate change, and 89% believe that they could contribute to reducing poverty. And uh, this mirrors a trend in both not just investments, but also in consumption and employment, where millennials are far more likely to take sustainability and impact into account when making consumption decisions and also figuring out where to, uh, where to work. And so we think that this, not just this wealth transfer, but this generational evolution will be an absolute sea change in our field and, and in the field of, of impact more broadly. Uh, in, in that regard and related, we see a huge opportunity for democratizing access to impact investing. And we, you know, we believe that while high net worth families have really led the charge um, early on in the deployment of capital for impact, we no longer believe that it's just the province of high net worth individuals. And so access to products uh, around impact for retail investors is enabled by this growing product set. And they could be impact-oriented ETFs, uh, mutual funds, and other innovative products like ESG robo-advisors. Robo we see that they're uh, is innovation and uh, continued innovation to give retail investors access to deep impact investing products, so private, uh, private debt, private equity. And there I would say that uh, the efforts by Calvert Impact Capital's Community Investment Note is perhaps one of the best examples and the most extremely retailized. Uh, they have figured out a way to uh, provide access to the community investment notes uh, uh, for as little as $20. Uh, community capital management has, has uh, offered a public debt product that backs women-held mortgages and loans. So we see that as a, could be a great democratizing tool. And finally, we talked earlier about donor-advised funds, but they're continuing to grow as charitable giving vehicles. And oftentimes, the initial contribution is as low as $5,000. And so national donor-advised funds, including Fidelity, Charitable, Schwab, Charitable, and Morgan Stanley, and others, are increasingly providing their donors with impact investing options as our um, you know, the impact-oriented donor-advised funds like, like impact assets. Other, other topics in terms of uh, opportunities, we've been very interested in this ongoing conversation surrounding a return to stakeholder capitalism, um, or what some are, are including talking about as inclusive capitalism. We've already mentioned the Business Roundtable statement. Um, there was a, a, an interesting op-ed in the New York Times from Mark Benioff a couple days ago, who's chair and CEO of Salesforce, titled We Need a New Capitalism, in which he declared capitalism as we know it is dead. Um, th so there's a growing uh, interest in stakeholder capitalism, understanding the ways that impact investors can play a role in trying to um, bring more equity and diversity, uh, more justice, social, economic, and environmental justice to the capitalist system is something that we have been really interested in as uh, kind of a developing opportunity. Are there still things that feel to you like um, until we get this right, the field's not going to take off sort of challenges that feel pretty urgent to, to address? Yeah. Um, 
a couple of them. So you talked earlier about impact washing and what's nested in your comment is a desire to converge on some standards around impact metrics, measurement, reporting, and management. Um, on the one hand, I think that that's really important and I can talk about you know the state of impact metrics, measurement, and reporting in a second. But I also feel like in some ways impact investing is held to a double standard. It's like we have to have competitive or superior premium rates of return. We need to be mitigating risk. And we also have to have very precise scientific approaches to measuring impact. And I just will say that I think it's like a double or triple standard that uh, impact investing is held to. That said, I do think there's been a lot of innovation and to a certain extent, some convergence around standards, around impact metrics, measurement and reporting. So that is will kind of uh, hopefully help with impact washing if we can create these standards. And, you know, it's a it's an alphabet soup of players. So there's, you know, the GIN recently released their core characteristics of impact investing. The IFC just offered operating principles for impact management. We have public sector standards like the GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative. UN uh, PRI it also has, you know, tens of trillions of dollars in assets represented as signatories. There's SASB, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, which in 2018 published a, a, a set of 77 institutional sustainability standards that are meant to be material, quantifiable, and comparable. And then on the, you know, more on the private side, there's the B impact assessment from B Lab, Iris Plus from Jin. Um, there's the SDGs uh, and there's the impact management project. And so I would say that, and I think in particular, the impact management project is trying to work with some of these other standard setters to understand how we can work together to um, build the field in a coordinated session. So on the one hand, I feel like that is a barrier to growth. And on the other hand, I feel like it's a little bit of a red herring. And um, we've been doing impact investing and measuring on impact investing for some time. Yeah, it seems like that that field of practice is sort of evolving with the field, like there wasn't any way to really accelerate the, the tools around that, because it needed the actual practice to sort of build the tools around. And so it's been interesting, you know, metrics and measurement from the very first monitor report, what, 10 years ago, was sort of seen as a pillar, like until we can help people understand what impact is and measure it and understand if the investments are really driving it, this will never take off. And it's always felt like, gosh, we're not far enough on the metrics and measurement. But from where I sit, it seems like they keep getting better and they're getting better because there's more things to measure. And so it's this interesting push-pull between just letting the practice evolve and that there are some of these um, investors and entrepreneurs who are taking risks without quantitative data to show that they're right. And, you know, that's just the nature of, of a, field, a new field, an emerging field. But yeah, it is interesting to see how those those two things are sort of evolving together. And I agree that it's often an excuse to not do it versus a true um, necessary underpinning for doing it. Yeah, I would just say just one last tidbit, because I mentioned metrics measurement reporting. And I, I just wanted to say that uh, metrics measurement reporting is included in this area that some of our challenges for growing as a field uh, really focuses on the need for strong market infrastructure. So we like to think at the Alliance about the core public goods that will allow capital to flow in the market with, it, with impact integrity. And we feel like everyone who participates in the impact investing market has enjoyed some of these public goods or public utilities um, that have been built meticulously, mainly by foundations over the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and take them almost for granted as if they're free and they are freely available. And we believe that that market infrastructure actually needs to be supported by everybody who moves capital in the field, asset owners, wealth platforms, asset managers. And some of these public goods we've touched on already, um, we are 
we practice public policy as an, at the Alliance, but you know, we spend so little on public policy as a field relative to other fields. Um, we think about things like movement building, bottom-up movement building, communications. We touched on data metrics and measurement of both financial returns and so we can have benchmarks as well as impact performance. And then of course, wanna do a shout out to the importance of the learning tools and talent, some of the network groups. And so, just a sh kind of shout out for infrastructure, which is undergirding everything that we've talked about and is wildly underfunded by the field. I think one of my real, my soapbox, I guess, this year is just that we're having too insular of a conversation. And so to your movement building point, some of that infrastructure is just different ways of communicating and making sure that more people feel involved. And I think reasonably there's been a lot of focus on uh, asset owners and people who control large amounts of wealth. But really what we're asking for here is a culture shift. You know, it's something that should be relevant to everybody. And I think um, Amit Bhatia, who runs the Global Steering Group and is based in India, talks about this should matter to the 1%, you know, this, this, or the, the percent that's living below the poverty line that um, it can't be about just the, the upper 1% that it needs to be relevant to everybody. And so, yeah, I love that you're focusing on that, that movement building piece as well, but you, you touched on, you've touched on a couple of times, so much of your work is focused on policy and how policy can be an enabling infrastructure. Can you um, spend a few minutes just sort of what is the policy conversation right now? And I think there's actually a few different buckets there. Maybe you could go into. Yeah. Uh, so I, took the home at the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance about 10 days before the presidential election in 2016. And had felt in the wake of the election and the single party dominance in Washington um, was really um, tried to look at that as an opportunity. We have felt for a very long time back from, you know, during our work at Impact Assets, Lindsay, that impact investing can have appeal across the political spectrum. We represent private sources of private capital that have impact objectives that map so well with policy objectives. When we think about jobs creation, education, healthcare, infrastructure, um, uh, clean energy, and use the this time to really create relationships and educate about what impact investing is and who impact investors are and what we mean by impact investing to members of Congress, uh, folks in the administration. And um, as I think back to that 2014 policy paper that was developed by the U.S. National Advisory Board, our predecessor organization, uh, we have achieved a couple of the, 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 the largest recommendations since that time. We've already talked about some of the fiduciary duty pieces and some others. Um, but since the presidential election, there have been a couple of impact investing moments around policy that I wanted to share. One most notably is opportunity zones. Um, I know it's an, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's own bona fide track at, at, uh, at SOCAP, and I know there's a, a great deal of interest in it. And Opportunity Zones uh, is a capital gains incentive uh, and tax benefit, and it's the first community investment incentive in 15 years since New Markets Tax Credits. And we hope that this could be a potential blueprint for future community investing policies. We really see Opportunity Zones and the incredible attention it's garnered as a way to put a spotlight on underinvested communities, disinvested communities, uh, in a way that uh, relates to opportunity zones, but relates more broadly to what is the future of community impact, um, community engagement as a path to community uh, impact. And so the opportunity zones in some ways could be seen as a, another tax break for the wealthy. A New York Times investigative piece recently positioned it as such. Uh, the most, for us, the most important part of that piece was to state that there are very few guardrails around opportunity zones, especially as it relates to access to data, transparency, and accountability on impact. And since the passage of the tax bill, I should have said the opportunity zones was tucked into the 2017 tax bill. Since passage, and actually even before passage, uh, we have been 
convening impact investing stakeholders, including you know, foundations, family offices, community development, finance institutions, local leaders, to start understanding how we could um, focus on community engagement with local leaders and officials to better understand resident needs and the vital importance and opportunity zones around the data that will show whether or not opportunity zones has been efficacious. And by efficacious, I mean you know, what we believe legislative intent is, and that is community economic development. So we partnered, the Alliance partnered with the Beck Center um, at Georgetown and the New York Federal Reserve Bank to create a, a private sector framework, a voluntary private sector framework called the Opportunity Zones Reporting Framework to try to set best practices for investors and fund managers to ensure transparency, accountability, and authentic community engagement at the core. Um, and so we've been very active both on the regulatory side to try to bake uh, uh, impact mandated impact reporting at the federal, you know, federal mandate uh, in through public comment letters and testifying at IRS public hearings, but also trying to set this private sector standard, you will call that I talked earlier about the business roundtable in a way of self-regulation. Um, and I think regulation is kind of the in some ways, the, the 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 standard is to to do to develop both to develop private sector standards um, as well as uh, um, mandated mandated disclosure, and I can talk about that a little bit more in a second. Um, this the second big development on the impact investing policy landscape was the Build Act, which was signed into law in 2018. Um, Again, this was something that was recommended in the U.S. National Advisory Board report in 2014 to modernize the U.S.'s development finance institution, which is called OPIC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. And indeed, the Build Act did just that. Um, it would create a new and will create a new financial and development finance institution incorporating OPIC and elements of USAID, including the Development Credit Authority, um, and gives the, this new U.S. development finance uh, corporation, USDFC, expanded authority to make equity investments, whereas before it could only make loans, take some local currency exposure, make grants, offer technical assistance. And this is really exciting because we can uh, start creating more um, different sorts of engagement, catalyze new sorts of capital, sources of capital into um, emerging and frontier markets um, in new ways, partner with U.S. development finance corporations. So that is, a, is something that's interesting. And the other topic that I wanted to just touch on and something that we are really monitoring is the topic of um, mandated ESG disclosure. So we talked as I talked about in, in, with Opportunity Zones, the Alliance has taken a two-pronged approach, um, ma uh, ma hopefully hoping for a mandated, you know, regulated impact standard, but also doing this voluntary standard, the Opportunity Zone reporting framework. Um, and we talked earlier about the business roundtable as really being almost like self-regulatory or self-definition. We also are seeing a fair amount of action in Congress and among the SEC to start considering what um, ESG disclosure might look like on, on different kinds of aspects, on environmental disclosure, um, uh, employment disclosure, and, and, and uh, other issues around something they call human uh, capital management. Uh, which is off balance sheet. You know the biggest assets of of most companies are their are their uh, uh, their employee base. Um, so that's on the on the kind of positive development side. But we've also seen the SEC, in particular, start looking at, a little bit at eroding shareholder rights through raising the the bar by which shareholders can engage and get certain sort of their their concerns on um, the proxy statement. So there's a lot of action around public companies. Um, and so too, the European Commission has set some really bold standards uh, that we think could create uh, what we call the Brussels effect for asset managers and asset owners who will need to comply with the European standard and could there be a trickle-down effect to the United States. So there's a lot of action happening on the policy side um, and the, the, the regulatory work um, that I wanted to share with you. Yeah, and I think most people are largely unaware of, of all of that. Um, so thank you for sort of giving us a window in. Um, 
you know, you're so often in this role of sort of representing the industry or commenting from this sort of organizational industry perspective, but I want to just end on a little bit more of a personal note. Um, why is this, why is this your work, Fran? Like, what is it about this field that from 2006 to now sort of keeps this, the, the area that has your interest? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been working professionally in the field since on the investment side since 2006, but had started right after business school working with and for impact entrepreneurs. And um, I started my career in philanthropy, focused on the grant side, and over time started thinking more about how the endowment invest was invested and was it invested unconsciously across purposes to the mission of the foundation, and really went to business school with the goal of trying to understand how to create social, economic, and environmental value through the capital markets and through the for-profit means, feeling that even then, you know, in 1998, the, the social, economic, and environmental problems were so large and so intractable and felt like grant capital alone and uh, foreign government aid, um, overseas uh, foreign aid alone, were, wouldn't be enough to address the pressing issues of our time. I felt that the capital markets now at $200 trillion just really dwarf you know, U.S. foreign aid, I think, is tw- not including military, is $25 billion. All of professional grant making is about $80 billion, and the capital markets are $212 trillion. So just felt like this was the future forward. If we really wanted to leverage, that we needed to leverage all the tools in our toolkit in order to make change. And so that has really undergirded and my, my work in the field and fueled it, spurred it forward. And um, I'm you know, committed uh, my career to this work, and it has been so exciting to see the development of the field. It's got to be so gratifying. I mean, the field has grown just even in the shorter time that I've been in it. There's been tremendous progress. I think sometimes we're impatient and it feels like it's not fast enough, but as a field to commit yourself to, a lot has happened. Mm-hmm. There's been huge change. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with us, Fran. We tried to cover a lot in here. I was thinking as you were talking that for anyone who just sort of wants to keep up to date on some of this, I've always found that Twitter is one of the best places to sort of stay up on the latest and you're very active there. And so um, I hope people sort of follow the work you know, of the Alliance and of the field generally. But thank you for taking the time to give us so much info here on the podcast. It was my pleasure to be with you today, Lindsay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Money and Meaning. We've loved expanding the reach of these conversations through the podcast and would love your help in bringing more new voices to this growing impact marketplace. Please send us your feedback, rate the podcast on iTunes, and share with friends and colleagues. Until next time. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.